Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous episodes as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederata.com. Okay, we started talking about archaeology last week, and I kind of ran out of time uh, unexpectedly. I had several more stories I wanted to share. Um, It's probably because this is definitely one of my better fields of knowledge in general, so um, I can do a lot more uh, explaining without getting to new stories about different details. Um, But So I wanted to finish up tonight with those stories, And then next week, we'll probably get back to the sort of potpourri of news stories um, format that I've been doing for a while. But who knows? (laughs) All right. So tonight, we're actually going backwards in time. Uh, And so we're going to start in archaeology, and eventually we're going to get back to anthropology, which, you know, there's sort of a a wavy line between those two. Um, You know, anthropology usually... Uh, is more initially in this in this kind of understanding is more concerned with uh, hominid early hominid bones and things like that where there isn't a lot of necessarily archaeological material um, there might be some stone tools and things like that but there's sort of a wavy line between when we talk about archaeology is kind of with modern humans and anthropology is with sort of early modern humans and others, um, homo species that were around at the time. And so we actually left off kind of in the middle of a story last week. And so I did want to come back to that and wrap, wrap it up. And so we were talking about how geology can actually be folded into our understanding of the archaeological past. And so, um, if you weren't here last week, I'll just do a tiny recap. Um, In the 6th century, there were basically two major volcanic eruptions that kind of made it a bad place to try and live. Uh, There was a lot going on in Europe because of it. And the other part was that there was some real issues in El Salvador, which is partly how they were able to figure out that the Ilopango caldera, uh, which is again now located in El Salvador, was probably the second of those major eruptions, the first having been in the Northern Hemisphere, either in North America or uh, Iceland. And they haven't quite figured that one out yet, but... Um, it's important that they figured this one out. And so Europe got got a lot of bad things. Uh, there was basically famine and plague, uh, the plague of Justinian, which uh, has finally, I think, people have settled on the fact that it was the uh, bubonic plague. For a long time, people kind of argued over what that plague was. Uh, but I think that they have finally settled that on the fact that it was bubonic plague. But we're going to actually talk about the other side of the world. We're going to talk about what happened locally when this huge volcano uh, erupted. And what's really cool, though, is that not only 
uh, do the researchers think that they can pinpoint where it was, but through both dendrochronology and atmospheric circulation patterns, they actually think they can pinpoint the date itself to the fall of 539 CE. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> uh, and so the eruption actually had eight distinct phases, one of which blanketed the local area with rock and ash almost 300 feet thick, according to Dario Pedrazzi, a geologist at the Institute of Earth Science, uh, Jamun Almera, uh, of, the of the Spanish Scientific Research Council in Barcelona. And um, they actually led the field work that actually went to the volcano. And one of the big things about this is that it can explain what has been a kind of mysterious break in monumental building from the Maya who inhabited the, re the region directly around the volcano. And so obviously Maya settlements within about 30 to 40 miles, people there would have either been instantly uh, killed or would have had to flee immediately uh, evacuate all of that area because it was just going to be unlivable. Um, they would have really needed to be able to get out of there because even though eventually volcanic ash leads to really nice soil, uh, in the first uh, wave of it, it just destroys everything and everything becomes basically a literal wasteland. And so unfortunately, people would have had to get out of the area. And not only would it have kind of affected the people in the immediate area, but it would have also most likely disrupted trade routes uh, that went through the local area. And also, we know that it disrupted some monumental um, construction. And so there is the Maya city of Tazamul, um, or Tazimal, uh, and we know that it must have suffered an evacuation and an interruption in building. And so it's nice to be able to sort of pinpoint when exactly that happened in order to kind of have a better sense of what was happening to the Maya and why. The research helps to bring the eruption to life and to really understand what the Maya were experiencing, said Robert Dull, a paleoecologist at the University of Texas at Austin, who was not involved in the research. This was a massive natural catastrophe that had huge implications for Maya cultural evolution. And so, in fact, there's actually evidence to suggest that the volcanic eruption damaged the Maya settlements and decimated the populations in parts of El Salvador and southeastern Guatemala so much that they weren't able to recover in, until the 7th century, into, into the 7th century. And so um, it took about 100 years for them to be able to get back on their feet and really have their uh, this branch of the Maya civilization to actually recover. And so it was pretty, it was pretty significant. Um, and, you know, these are people who rely on simple farming. Uh, I mean, not simple in the sense of uh, unsophisticated, but, you know, they're growing corn and things like that. And they're already growing it in a place that is, has 
a high margin uh, to it. And so they were already having to do a lot to um, make the soil fertile so that they could actually grow their crops. And then to have this happen, it it would be unsustainable in that part of the world to live at that point. They would have had to move to other parts of uh, the Maya empire. And so if the eruption were to happen today, it would be pretty catastrophic. Uh, Three million people live within 20 miles of the caldera. Uh, San Salvador, the capital, is just over six miles away, and actually most of the city is built on the tephra ash deposits from that very eruption. (laughs) So yeah, um, hopefully it is now dormant and will not be bothering anyone again, because that would be very scary. Uh, We definitely don't want it to erupt again. But unfortunately, volcanoes are one of those things that just, there's not really much you can do. They're going to erupt when and uh, when they want to. And we still struggle with that. We still struggle with figuring out when volcanoes are actually going to erupt. And so even though we have a lot more sophistication than the ancient Maya did uh, in terms of technological advancement, we still probably would have a huge problem, um, or at least the people in El Salvador would have a huge problem if that uh, volcano decided to erupt. Okay, so again, we're going backwards in time. Uh, So we just talked about the Maya who lived around the the turn from... uh, before the common era to the common era. Um, And now we're going to go back to around 3000 to 1700 before the common era. And so we're going to talk about the Indus Valley or Harappan civilization. And so in fact, they did flourish between um, around 3000 to 1700 BCE. And they lived in an area that now encompasses parts of Afghanistan, Pakistan and northwestern India. And just to sort of put it in a historical perspective, they lived at the same time as the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians. And so um, the Egyptians were building uh, pyramids while the Harappan uh, cities were being built at the same time, basically. And so We know them from their amazing cities that they left behind. Uh, There are a series of seemingly modern inventions uh, that were part of their everyday lives, including five large cities. Uh, Two of those cities would have been Harappa and uh, Mohenjo-Daro. And they had amazing drainage and irrigation systems. They would have had wells and bathrooms built into many of the houses. They had a standardized system of weights. And they actually had a system of writing that unfortunately has puzzled researchers uh, since its discovery and remains undeciphered. Um, I think it's one of the few languages that we truly have never been able to uh, decipher I mean, we've even discovered how we even learned how to read uh, Mayan uh, um, hieroglyphics. And so um, there's a really famous story about um, the epigraphers, uh, which is people who study how to decode uh, ancient languages, um, how they were able to 
figure out what the Maya were saying in their uh, language. Uh, and so, yeah, it's very, it's very interesting to have this language that is completely undeciphered. And of course, part of the problem can be, it's much easier when you have writings of two different ancient languages together. Um, that's, a, that's kind of the only way that we ever figured out how the Egyptian, uh, what the Egyptian languages meant because, or language meant because we found the Rosetta Stone. And with a pictographic language like that, it can be extremely hard to figure out unless you have some sort of key. Um, but yeah, let's get back to the Harappans though. And one of the issues is of course that we don't know what this writing is. And so we have this kind of we have these cities, but we don't really know all that much about the people who lived there. Uh, and so there would have actually been between around one and five million inhabitants in this ancient civilization. So it was a pretty substantial place. And so the collapse of the Indus Valley civilization has actually been debated uh, a lot. And so uh, many scholars have talked about it as being a uh, example of climate change. And so uh, the area became more dry, the rivers uh, dried up, and the people had to flee. Now, in contrast, you may have heard of the Harappans, or at least Mohenjo-Daro, uh, from the show Ancient Aliens, uh, which ridiculously tries to suggest that nuclear war was the answer for why uh, the, the city's uh, civilization collapsed. Obviously, that is not a thing at all. Uh, there was no nuclear war weapons in uh, pre-modern times, no matter how many people try and say it. Uh, and there were no aliens either. Uh, it was just human beings creating really cool stuff the way that human beings have done and still do. Uh, and so there is some suggestion, though, with recent reappraisals of the uh, skeletal remains that it basically had a more prosaic end. Scientists cannot make assumptions that climate changes will always equate to violence and disease. However, in this case, it appears that the rapid urbanization process in Harappan cities and the increasingly large amount of culture contact brought new challenges to the human population. Infectious diseases like leprosy and tuberculosis were probably transmitted across an interaction sphere that spanned the Middle and South Asia, states Dr. Gwen Robbins-Shug of Appalachian State University and the lead author on the paper on this subject. In addition, uh, signs of violence also increased in skeletal remains as time went on. And so Dr. Shrug continues, as the environment changed, the exchange network became increasingly incoherent. When you combine that with social changes and this particular cultural context, it all worked together to create a situation that became untenable. And so basically what happens is that you end up with a civilization that just collapses due to 
a variety of factors like many other civilizations have. Uh, so again, no aliens, no uh, nuclear weapons. <laughs> it's just so silly. Um, and we actually know that they had contact with the people in the Near East, which is really cool. Uh, so we have Sumerian texts which refer to them. Uh, they actually call them the Meluch. Melhuhates. Um, and so they talk about these people coming from the uh, east and, uh, you know, they have certain interactions with them and they do certain things that are, um, that have to do with trade, obviously. And so as noted before, we've found many of their skeletons and while they had been examined for signs of trauma and disease, we really thought that we were never going to be able to get genetic material from them uh, because of the region's hot climate. Uh, basically, DNA rapidly denatures. And so it would be really hard to try and connect in Valley people to other populations, both old or new. Uh, and so it turns out that we were wrong. Uh, not like it was hugely wrong. It was actually a really uh, interesting way in which we're, we're able to do it now. And so in recent years, scientists have discovered that the petrous bone of the inner ear uh, contains much more DNA than other parts of the skeletal uh, system. And so this has allowed skeletons with even degraded bones to actually still be able to yield DNA if that petrous bone is uh, still in the skull. And so a team led by geneticist David Reich at Harvard University and archaeologist Vasant Shindi at Deccan College in Pune, India, decided to see if this technique would work on skeletons from the area. And so they took more than 60 skeletal remains, including many petrous bones, and tried them and kept failing. However, they were actually able to eventually find usable DNA from the petrous bone of a woman. It was still an extreme challenge, with the DNA needing to be sequenced over 100 times in order to piece a reasonable sequence together. And so this woman was buried surrounded by ceramic bowls and vases at a site known as Rakhigarhi, around 90 miles northwest of modern-day Delhi. Evidence in the grave suggests that she lived sometime between 2800 and 2300 BCE. And so what they found was that her DNA closely matched that from 11 under other individuals found in Iran and Turkmenistan, who were already, those DNA sequences were already in an ancient DNA sequence uh, database. And so when they added her DNA, they popped up as uh, having very similar DNA. And so interestingly, these samples had been outliers. They were not connected with other remains buried in the region. And so the researchers suspect that they actually might have been Harappan migrants because, again, these people were interacting in other regions. And so 
um, I always like to remind people because I feel like people are often have this misapprehension about the ancient world based on what we know kind of about the Middle Ages in Europe, um, which is not typical. And also we don't really understand how those people lived either, honestly, um, at least in the sort of very popular uh, ideas. I mean, obviously, researchers know better, but we have this kind of idea that you sort of lived and died where you lived, and that was it. Um, and people didn't really have a lot of interaction, uh, even though we know that there were trade routes and things like that. It's still, I think, hard for people to conceive that people were going out traveling long distances. Uh, you know, they had various pack animals, they had, uh, you know, their own two feet, uh, they developed all sorts of, uh, you know, wagons and things like that, they were able to move about uh, the countryside and did. And so it's really cool to find these other uh, DNA samples, because it basically uh, allows the researchers to then have a base of 12 individuals rather than one uh, to create a sort of template for Harappan DNA signatures. And so when they did that, what they discovered was that the civilization, that though the civilization had been extinct for almost 4,000 years, the Harappans form the base genetic stock for much of modern India. And this is according to another paper published by the team in the journal Cell. Reporting in the journal Science, uh, the team also notes that people from North India seem to have also interbred with ancient herders from the Eurasian steppes. And they had previously interbred with Europeans who had migrated into the region around 2000 BCE. Sorry, those those Asian herders migrated into the area of um, the Indus Valley around 2000 BCE, not the Europeans. Uh, and so this actually, in turn, helps explain the link between Europeans and South Asians. And so it turns out that when people from northern India and southern India intermingled, that European DNA was passed on from those in the north to the south. Um, because it was a little bit confusing because basically a lot of people in the South, it felt, you know, researchers kind of believed, and it seems like it might actually definitely hold true now, that they wouldn't have had contact with Europeans previous to more historical times. About two-thirds to three-fourths of the ancestry of all modern South Asians comes from a population group related to that of this Indus Valley individual, uh, Vagish Nas. Narasimhan, uh, one of the leading authors of the new research and a postdoctoral fellow in genetics at Harvard Medical School, said. Now, one surprising find was that ancient Iranian DNA present in modern South Asians and in the ancient Harappan is much older than previously believed. And so this actually changes the idea of how agriculture may have arrived in the Indian subcontinent. Subcontinent. It was previously believed that migrants from the Fertile Crescent had moved into India around 10,000 years ago, bringing the secrets of agriculture with them to the hunter-gatherers living in the region. However, it seems now likely that the rise of farming in India was independent of that found in the Fertile Crescent. Though, it turns out that, you know, as with everything, we don't know for certain. Uh, they may have learned farming from the ancient Iranians without having interbred with them during that later period. Now, 
Both fortunately and unfortunately, this is just the start of much research that will be able to be conducted in the future to better ascertain the history of these people and the region in which they lived. And of course, as with much science, some researchers have suggested caution when extrapolating from this small amount of evidence because, for instance, they point out two very important complications to the story, even beyond the fact that there's just a very small pool of uh, DNA, even with those 12 people. Uh, first off, they suggest that cremation rather than burial seemed to have been the preferred method of death preparation uh, for the Harappan civilization. So it's slightly suspect as to whether or not this woman would have uh, actually represented the greater part of the civilization. And secondly, the Harappan civilization was a cosmopolitan one, and so it was potentially filled with people from other areas. So, for instance, we know that there were probably people from, uh, you know, that were related to this woman were in other parts of the Near East, and so people from the Near East were probably in uh, the Indus Valley and people from all over the place. And so they say that the uh, that these cities were more like uh, you know, New York or Tokyo today, filled with a cosmopolitan mix of all sorts of people. And so as with almost all scientific theories, more research is needed. Okay, so we are going to take a break to do some PSAs and some show promos. And then we're going to come back and we're going to switch over to England and talk about a cool underwater discovery. So hang on for just a second. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Hey everyone, DJ Man of Nowhere here. Tune in to our show Arts Electronica, dedicated to downtempo, ambient, electronic and house music, but also techno and trance with a hint of progressive and deep house, dubstep and experimental. We love all the music wizards here that bring to life their poetry throughout their sound spaces, soundscapes and sound sculptures. Arts Electronica goes live on Saturdays at midnight to 2 a.m. Sunday morning. Check us out. Sassy! Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, Sassy! You will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? Over 5 million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, Sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the ShelterPetProject.org. Remember, adopt. Drum and Bass with DJ Fife is on 8 o'clock on Saturday night. We roll from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock on the Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, or online at ValleyFreeRadio.org. Join the 8 o'clock Drum and Bass Association by listening to Drum and Bass with DJ Fife, 8 to 10 Saturday nights. 
get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for media flu. is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Hello, this is John Hodgman, resident expert for The Daily Show with John Stewart and author of More Information Than You Require, speaking into a small machine representing WXOJLP Northampton Valley Free Radio found on your radio dial at 103.3 frequency modulation. That is all. Okay, and so we are back. And like I said, we're going to move again back in time a little bit. Uh, and we are going to talk about a underwater archaeology um, discovery. <laughs> and so this is an 8,000-year-old wooden platform uh, from off the Isle of Wight. And it actually may be the world's oldest boat building site. And so the newly discovered platform consists of split timbers sitting on horizontally laid round wood formations. It is the most intact wooden Middle Stone Age structure thus, found, thus far found in the UK. This discovery is particularly important as the wooden platform is part of a site that doubles the amount of worked wood found in the UK from a period that lasts that lasted 5,500 years, said Gary Mober, director of the Maritime Archaeological Trust. The site is east of Yarmouth in the west of the Isle of Wight off the south coast of England. It now sits 36 feet below sea level, but at the time it would have that would have been built, it would have actually been on dry land surrounded by lush vegetation. And so interestingly, uh, at this time, the North Sea had actually not fully formed. And so the Isle of Wight was actually still connected to the mainland of Europe. And so the site was first discovered in 2005, but researchers were unable to determine what exactly the remains represented. That was until a team of underwater archaeologists from the Maritime Archaeological Trust used cutting-edge photogrammetry, photogrammetry, um, I cannot say that word, photogrammetry, techniques to map the site in detail. They were able to then create a 3D digital model of the landscape. This site contains a wealth of evidence for technological skills that were not thought to have been developed for a further couple of thousand years, such as advanced woodworking, Momber said. The site shows the value of maritime archaeology for understanding the development of civilization. So that's very cool. Um, not a whole lot to talk about except for it's really cool. And, you know, you've got these people, very early um, inhabitants of this area, building boats way before we thought that they were doing this sort of thing. So that's very cool. All right. So let us move again back in time uh, and swing back over to the Americas 
And so we are going to talk about the evidence that has been found that suggests that the first inhabitants of North America came by sea rather than by land. Now, of course, it was once just easily accepted uh, sort of common knowledge that the first people to come to the Americas traveled overland by a bridge that was created as melting glaciers began to recede and revealed land bridges that allowed the ancient ancestors of the indigenous populations of the two continents to begin to spread south and to eventually reach Tierra del Fuego in the south and also to go east and get into the Canadian Maritimes and Maine and everywhere that's, uh, you know, the eastern portion of the continent. But in recent years, a new theory has emerged. It was not land bridges, they say, but rather seafaring technology that brought ancient Asian peoples to the opposite shore of the Pacific, where they found what is now the Pacific Northwest of the United States and Canada. And so a new excavation at a site called Cooper's Ferry between the Rock Creek and the Lower Salmon River of western Idaho has been dated to around 16,000 years ago. It fit really nicely with the coastal model that we've, we're increasingly getting a consensus on from genetics and archaeology, said Jennifer Raff, a geneticist at the University of Kansas in Lawrence, who studies the peopling of the Americas and who was not involved in the study. Now, it was once believed that the Clovis people, whose stone tools date to around 13,000 years ago, were the first people to arrive on the continent by the land bridge. For years, researchers tried to suggest that they'd found pre-Clovis sites, but many of those sites are dated significantly further in the past or had questionable provenance, and so it cast doubt on their authenticity. But a handful of sites that are from more reasonable dates and have a much more have much more reliable artifacts have emerged, and researchers are now fairly convinced that the Clovis people were not the first to arrive in the Americas. The site at Cooper's Ferry would have been occupied more than a thousand years before the land bridge would have even emerged. Now, even though it's seemingly landlocked, the river system would have made it an ideal place to camp. As people come down the coast, the first left-hand turn to get south of the ice comes up the Columbia River Basin, notes Lauren Davis, an archaeologist at the Oregon State University in Corvallis, who led the excavations. It's the first off-ramp. And so 10 years of excavation have led to a large cache of objects, stone spear points, blades, and bifaces. Uh, bifaces are multifunctional tools uh, that were used along with a variety of debris from the napping process uh, that would have created those tools. Radiocarbon, radiocarbon dating of charcoal and bone from the site show ages as old as 15,500 years. The only other site that has been identified as possibly older is the Galt site in Texas, which has been dated to 16,000 years ago by optical luminescence, but this has larger error bars than carbon dating. 
Uh, so basically, this means that the plus or minus age range uh, is larger for optical luminescence than it is for carbon dating. So the idea is that potentially this site in Oregon is uh, older. And so uh, the area, which is now on federal land, was traditionally occupied by the uh, Ne Perse tribe, who refer to themselves as the Ni-Mi-Pu. And so they, you know, have a stake in this. Our stories already tell us how long we've been here. This study only reaffirms that. Uh, says Nakia Williamson, the tribe's director of cultural resources. This is not just something that happened 16,000 years ago. It's something that is still important to us today. And um, I think it's actually really interesting that this is seems more like a partnership. Um, you know, we have traditionally had a lot of problems uh, kind of interacting between scientific findings and uh, Native American interests. And um, it's nice to see that at least in this point, uh, at least in this case, I should say, um, you know, the idea that people have been here for a very long time is actually kind of meshing with what pe what the peoples themselves have believed and thought, um, because it can be very fraught when you're talking about, um, you know, the origins of an ancient people who still carry with them uh, that cultural legacy and have specific ideas about, you know, where they came from and, um, you know, how long they've been there. Um, especially in the Southwest and things like that, a lot of the peoples kind of suggest that they've always been there. And modern science says, well, no, you haven't always been there. Uh, and so that can be a little bit fraught. So yeah, hopefully this is a good sign that people are working together to find the uh, true identity of the people who lived there and uh, when exactly that was. Okay, so now is the point where we are going to move, uh, s sort of move again, it's, you know, the line is very wavy, uh, from archaeology to anthropology. And so, again, that's kind of the difference between talking about fully modern humans and talking about a mix of modern humans and other ancient hominids. So we're going to go back to Asia to talk about the Denisovans for a few minutes. Now, we've talked about this enigmatic group of late hominids before. And so just to ground you in the timeline, if you're not familiar, about 800,000 years ago, modern humans and Neanderthals branched off to become separate species. And then around 400,000 years later, European Neanderthals actually diverged from Denisovans who moved into Asia. And so... The three would have shared, um, so modern humans and Neanderthals share a common ancestor, and then Neanderthals and Denisovans share a common ancestor. Um, and then, of course, more basal would be that, um, the, that common ancestor between Neanderthals and humans to kind of connect all three of us. And so 
All three species were very genetically similar, obviously, uh, enough to interbreed, and they did, uh, but all have distinctive attributes and physical features, as well as distinctive DNA signatures, which is kind of how we know um, about the Denisovans. And so there are actually only five skeletal fossils, three molars, a mandible, and the tip of a pinky finger. And then the only other thing we have is the echo of their DNA in uh, some modern human groups. And so we kind of were able to figure out uh, initially that there must be this other uh, pre-modern or this other species of Homo out there because there were distinctive DNA signatures that didn't belong to either um, humans or Neanderthals. I think they actually still believe that there's one other that we haven't yet discovered. Um, and so it's really interesting to find out anything about the Denisovans because we know very, very little about them. And so, for instance, though, we did know from that DNA that despite a complete lack of fossils, Denisovans actually made it all the way into Melanesia because their DNA can still be found in modern populations there. And so that pinky tip uh, was actually the first to be discovered 11 years ago in the Siberian cave called Denisova, uh, which obviously gave the species its name. The finger phalanx was rather unbelievably cut in half by the original Russian researchers with half going to the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Germany and the other half to the Berkeley University in California. And so that particular piece was sent a year later to the Institute Jacques Monod in France, where it was measured, photographed, and genetically analyzed. It was then sent back to Berkeley and promptly vanished. We still don't know where it is to this very day. Uh, the very first bone ever discovered from the Denisovans and half of it is missing. Not science's best work. But with the photographs from the fragment when it was in France, a team was able to image the still extant half and create a virtual reconstruction of the full finger bone fragment. We used ancient DNA analysis to look at mitochondrial, the mitochondrial genome. Benz Viola, a co-author of the new study and an assistant professor at the Department of Anthropology at the University of Toronto, told Gizmodo. And so this basically allowed them to confirm that the two pieces really did fit together. We reconstructed the finger from photographs of the distal or the tip part and microcomputed tomography scans of the proximal, the joint, uh, part. We then used the measurements taken on the original parts and the reconstruction to compare it to other finger bones. And so they compared it to modern humans, to uh, Neanderthals, and to other, um, actually to other species as well, to certain animal species. And it turns out that we can tell from the genetics and from the growth plates on the bone that it most likely belonged to an adolescent female who was around 13 and a half years old when she died. And it turns out that when they did those comparisons, the finger much more resembled a human than a Neanderthal. I was quite surprised, Viola said. I always suspect 
I always expected the other end of the finger to look rather Neanderthal-like. Neanderthals had relatively chubby fingers compared to ours, with the bone under the fingernails, the so-called apical tuft, relatively broad and round, while in modern humans this part is more elongated, narrow, and oval. And so what this suggests is that the common ancestor of all three groups had a more gracile finger like that of modern humans and Denisovans. Um, and so it suggests that Neanderthals actually developed their more squat finger configuration after branching off from their common ancestor with the Denisovans. And so this doesn't mean that the Denisovans are more closely related to us at all, because sometimes people can think, oh, well, they look more like us, then they must be more like us. Rather, it means that the Neanderthals developed their distinct morphological uh, changes to their schedule over time in response to the distinct environment in which they lived sometime after they branched off from Denisovans. And so one of the big issues with this research is that it actually shows the important implications, sorry, it shows that you researchers can't necessarily know what species a bone belongs to by looking for these certain anatom anatomical features. Because of course, uh, as uh, Viola said, if they had found a, um, a bone that looked more Neanderthal, in this cave, they would have thought it was more Dennis. They would have thought, oh, this could be from a Denisovan. And so they actually will need to conduct DNA testing, if possible, to determine whether the bones belong to modern humans, Denisovans, or early Neanderthals. It's clear now that archaeologists or anthropologists can't just watch out for archaic-looking bones, but also for bones looking more modern, the researchers wrote. Eventually, some bones may be discovered with Denisovan-specific features, but it's likely that for many bones, like the phalanx, we will need to use genetic methods to identify them. And unfortunately, we kind of continue to have virtually no idea what Denisovans would have looked like overall. Uh, obviously, we have so little uh, material left from them. We know that they had the largest molars of all three species and that their fingers now we know were more like modern humans. But sadly, that's about all we can currently say. Um, you know, the Denisovans are just very enigmatic. Um, one of the, you know, we know a little bit more from the genes. So we know, for instance, um, that people in the Himalayas, uh, the Sherpa people, they most likely get their ability to uh, tolerate high altitudes from uh, the Denisovans. And um, I talked a couple of months ago, I think, about some of the sort of genetic information they found in more uh, Southeast Asia, in Melanesia, and place like, places like that to sort of show that even though uh, fossil preservation in those areas is very poor, um, it's amazing that anything survives, honestly, um, that we do know that they did reach that area. Okay, finally tonight, we are going to go all the way back uh, to before when modern humans actually walked the earth. So back in February of 2016, a young goat herder, uh, Ali 
Verino made a discovery. The Afar man had been watching and waiting for an opportunity to be hired by a team of academic fossil hunters in northeastern Ethiopia. One day, he started to dig a hole to keep his baby goats safe from hyenas. And so that was, of course, when he made the grand discovery. A jawbone, which he brought to the team's leader, Ethiopian, Ethiopian paleoanthropologist Johann Haley Selassie of the Cleveland Museum of Natural History in Ohio. Returning to the site, they discovered the almost complete skull from the distant human ancestor Australopithecus anamensis, which dates to around 3.8 million years ago. A. anamensis is the predecessor of the more famous A. afarensis uh, of Lucy fame. And so uh, three years later, they are finally reporting on their findings. It's a spectacular find, says Carol Ward, an evolutionary anatomist at the University of Missouri School of Medicine in Columbia. A number of teams, mine included, have been looking for an Australopithecus skull like this. This is the specimen we've been waiting for. And so most anthropologists, Haley Selassie among them, believe that A. amanensis gradually transitioned into and was replaced by A. afarensis. Teeth and jaws from Kenya, found back in 1995 and dated to 4 million years ago, also suggested that Amanensis transitioned to afarensis, which lived between 3.7 and 3 million years ago. The new specimen, named MRD, after the site where it was found, the Mirodora, has been identified as a male with a brain capacity of around 370 cubic centimeters. This is similar to that of a chimpanzee. The skull features jutting cheekbones, elongated canine teeth, and oval-shaped ear holes. The skull may also have solved the identification of a 3.9 million-year-old forehead bone found in 1981 in Ethiopia. Haley Selassie suggests that comparing it to MRD, it more closely resembles A. afarensis rather than, uh, than MRD. And so this would suggest a large amount of overlap for the two species. The researchers suggest that this may be because afarensis branched off rather than simply replaced amanensis. Some others suggest that the bone could still be A. amanensis, with simply a slightly different genetic variation. And so this kind of back and forth is unfortunately, again, uh, the result of a very small sample size. Uh, this is a classic uh, issue with ancient human remains or ancient hominid remains is that we kind of have an issue with uh, preservation and finding these things. And so we have very small sample sizes. Um, and so it can be really hard to figure out exactly where uh, certain bones fit because there is natural variation. Um, you know, if you look at people today, there is natural variation between people. Some people are very tall. Some people are very short. Some people have broad features. Some people have 
more pointed features. Humans have a large variety of um, genetic variation that is played out in gener- in uh, variation in their skeletal systems. And so there's, you know, very obvious uh, um, morphologies that are spread across all humans, but there can be variation. And when you only have tiny fragments of bones and that you're trying to fit into different bins, it can be really hard. And so uh, this is a classic problem in anthropology, and it basically comes down to uh, we've talked. I've talked about this before. There are lumpers and splitters. And so there are people who want to sort of say, well, all of these things are basically the same animal um, or the same species. And so we'll just put them all together. There's other people that say, well, no, this, per- this, this particular specimen has slightly different features. And that means that they're a different species. And so uh, some Anthropologists are much more willing to differentiate between species based on small differences, while others suggest that those differences, again, just represent individual variation. And so, um, you know, we continue to progress. We have better computer models, better dating methods, um, but, you know, it's still a continuing problem in anthropology is how do you fit things into these bins when you have so little to go on, um, you know, and especially since with these uh, really ancient remains, you basically are very unlikely to be able to get genetic information. And so there's no way to be able to differentiate between them based on genetics, because that would makes that makes it much easier when you get up into sort of, uh, you know, Neanderthals and Denisovans and early modern humans where they're just at a place where you can actually um, find that DNA. Um, And so it's much harder when you've got uh, (laughs) a homo, um, when you've got an Australopithecus skeleton and there's basically no chance of getting DNA from it. Um, So this is definitely an argument that's going to complete continue to happen. Uh, It is definitely not going to be solved tonight. And uh, unfortunately, that is all the time we have for tonight. So uh, please do stay tuned for Civil Politics coming up next. Burr of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.